Today's episode was recorded live on January 30th at EDS at Union's event, Flint, Faith, and Justice with Anna Clark. Clark is the author of The Poison City, Flint's Water and the American Urban Tragedy, which was selected as EDS at Union's Spring Community Read. Dean Kelly Brown Douglas discussed Anna Clark's books and asked not only who poisoned Flint's water, but what poisoned it. And Clark's response as an investigative journalist goes well beyond the fact of lead pipes. The water crisis that devastated Flint is an example of a much broader story of American urban tragedy. It is a story of poverty, race, and toxic environmental injustices that we all must learn from, especially as we seek to become effective faith leaders. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and help us spread the word by sharing the show with your friends. And with that, here is Dean Douglas and Anna Clark in Union's James Memorial Chapel. Thank you very much. And thank you for a very informative uh, talk for all of us and a very powerful book. And it leads us to think about the water crisis and the environmental crisis uh, in a more complex and comprehensive way. And so I wanna jump right in and asking a couple of questions and then hopefully we will have some questions as well from our audience. You say when we think about uh, environmental justice and quote your book, we must talk about the relationship between place, pollution, and power. In this book, water becomes a metaphor in many respects for the way in which we are all connected, but it also becomes a metaphor for the way in which we are all we are divided in this country. And in this respect, what happened in Flint is a 21st century manifestation, and you talk about the Kerner Report uh, that made clear that we live in a divided white and black America. And you've pointed out in this book how the divide of race defines the reality of environmental justice so that you have said that if we're going to uh, address issues of environmental justice, we must also address issues of racial justice. And if we talk about environmental injustice, we cannot talk about that apart from racial injustice. Yet, we see that this is not in the case in terms of many of our uh, environmental justice movements, right? or racial justice movements, these things don't come together. And so I wanna ask you, as you've done this work and lived with this for a long time and have seen the way in which these things interact, uh, yet the way in which we approach these issues, and particularly this issue of the environment and the environmental crisis, how do we begin to bridge this divide? How do we begin to bring these two movements of racial justice and environmental justice together? Starting with the easy one, I see. Um, <laughs> no, that's that's powerful and, and important. Um, and I'm glad you brought up the Kerner report too. I mean, we just we just went through its like 50th anniversary year, right? So everybody, I'm sure, like probably caught some, at least some of the sort of reflection and how far we come and da da da. You know, revisiting that. But you know, it, I, I read the entire thing. Like I, I like I, and it is actually amazing how. Um, 
how much that it predicted would happen did actually happen. <laughs> um, you know, they're, they're, they, they, they could see the, the, it came out in 1968, so the same year, you know, as, in fact, just like five weeks after that fair housing vote in Flint, um, it was, uh, and, it, and it talks a lot about fair housing um, and, and segregation, and talks about how this, like, you know, this center cannot hold and how this is, um, we're setting a pattern of like hollowing out our core cities and um, exacerbating our separateness in ways that are going to hurt everybody. You know, they're moral and they're gonna hurt everybody. And, you know, decades on, the exact patterns they predicted were happening. Um, and uh, one of the, like, the idea of like combining, you know, like finding this like meeting point between racial justice and environmental justice, like first of all, like I would just wanna give an acknowledgement that there are a number of people who are there <laughs> and who I learned from and who have been working on these things um, in this intersection for many decades. And, um, but I think there's like, it does also give me pause about how, um, about like like why isn't there why isn't there more of that like fusion, and I have a number of thoughts going in my head. Like one is I think when people think of um, the way we divide place, you know, like when we think of core cities, it's predominantly people of color, and when people think of like suburbs and rural areas, they predominantly think of white people. That's how we've. I know that's not like the the strict pattern, but it's like sort of the the perception and 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 a pattern, um, and when people think of um, environmentalism, they don't think of cities, you know, like they, and, and this is true of me too, like I, I care about the environment, but I, as a journalist, I wrote a lot about cities, um, like Detroit, like where I live and other cities like it especially. It took me a while to sort of start realizing that like that's not the opposite of being an environmental reporter, right? Like that, you know, environment, the environment isn't just like rural landscapes, right? It's, um, it's not just like, um, um, forests and oceans, you know, it includes our built environment, it includes, um, you know, like the way we interact in nature in, um, in, in dense neighborhoods. And I, but I think the sort of like myth, the, the sort of like, we have like this sort of like myth that they're two separate realms and uh, uh, to focus on one is to not focus on the other. And because we've organized placed places in a segregated pattern that's often followed like racial patterns. So like when you look at environmental organizations, there are a lot of white people, you know, <laughs> like that, I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, they, I, I, and when we talk about like, why didn't, weren't people there sooner in Flint with these like rising, escalating, serious life and death issues with the water, it's not just like state workers um, and federal workers that um, we might uh, critique. It's also like, where were the environmental organizations? Like where were other universities, including their like natural resources departments, including those campuses um, that were in Flint, where were um, other journalists, including environmental journalists, including myself, you know, who was 70, an hour drive away, you know? Um, a lot of us like should have been there sooner. And um, I think, and I, I, which I think, and I think the like consequences of that delay shows how urgent it is to sort of reconceive of um, the narratives we have around what a city is and what um, um, and in the environment is, you know, um, because because that's not how, because people live in like there, those are the separateness of that is as false as any um, you know redlined map we have that divides space by race. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, mm -hmm. it does. And what it leads me to is that, and you point this out uh, very clearly in your book that. It wasn't until 
white families began to say that they were being impacted because for a long time, black families were saying that and they were going to the uh, city council or to the authorities with their dirty water uh, or saying that their kids had these rashes or hair was falling out. And it was when a couple of white mothers and they uh, began to articulate this and uh, white communities or white people in the community began to be impacted, the people began to to hear and to listen. It's literally true. And they, if you talk to folks, they were very strategic about that. That wasn't even just a coincidence. They, like, after a long time of not getting any any response, you know, to a number of concerns, despite more and more information, um, they uh, started very purposefully um, putting in front, you know, um, as uh, uh, the 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 white mothers, the white married mothers that were in their family, who ha were tremendously talented and committed organizers who were genuinely harmed by it, but um, but they were also, but it, it, it wasn't a coincidence that they were forefronted. Um, and it wasn't a coincidence that that is when the narrative started shifting, because suddenly it starts fitting into people's like, you know, fitting a little bit closer to people's like stereotypes of like how an environmental injustice happens, you know, it looks a little more like, you know, like the Aaron Brockovich story or something like that. You know, like it, 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 people where pe people um, have a capacity of empathy for these, you know, this is certain profile of person that they do not apparently have, you know, for people who are of different races or of different life situations or, you know, it's just, it, they don't have like that same level of sympathy um, as evidenced by the fact that they didn't act. <laughs> yeah. You know? And it continues the pattern which you point to historically that when we think about where certain things are built, uh, uh, sewer sites, d dumping sites, that they're where we think of where we dispose of things that need to be disposed of, uh, they are put in the areas with people who we consider disposable people. It's absolutely true. It's, it's, it's just true. Like you just, people have been documenting this for decades, you know, like it's, when we divide this this is when we divide land up and we say that like th this parcel of land is worth less you know not metaphorically literally worth less um in in part in large part because of the race of the people who live there then suddenly you know that distorts all the kind of equations people are going to later calculate about where where should we put this like dump site or where should we put this um um, landfill or whatever it is, you know, like they'll, or what, what, what do we just, what do we, um, uh, uh, tear down to like build this highway when they look at the numbers, they're like, oh, that neighborhood has less value, um, because they set it up that way, right? Like this, the system set it up so that, um, that, uh, that in, in this fashion, so that like the land is worth less, the, s the second a person of color like moves there. That's how that that's the origin of our like you know segregated system, um, it, 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 and, 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 and and just one too like it's like it's like you can't like even neighborhoods that were redlined also included like mostly white neighborhoods that had just a few people of color. It was considered like oh well it's like you know, it can either be a black neighborhood or white neighborhood. It can't be both. It can't be both. And they set that up in, in a way that with so those neighborhoods were going to be not have the same access to like loans um, for not just mortgages, but equity loans. Um, they weren't gonna be have this infrastructure invested in the same way, and they, they, they weren't able to like thrive in the same way, and they weren't able to pass down generational wealth in the same way. And so suddenly, like, 
when, so when you look at, when you make these kind of calculations and, you know, and you keep finding out that the neighborhood with a lot of people of color is the one that's worth less, you know, to put a toxic dump there or whatever it is, it's preposterous to not look at the context that set that pattern up, right? It's like, because it's not a coincidence and, um, and it takes, just as it was very purposefully created, it has to be very purposefully uncreated, or we're gonna keep seeing this pattern play out. So let me follow up on that a bit of sort of what gets handed down generationally. You have very clearly, and, and the Flint story has very clearly let us know, thank you, that the children were poisoned. Yeah. The most vulnerable in the community uh, were poisoned. But the reality, of the situation continues is that the children are poisoned. And so that there, it continues to impact their lives regardless of what changes may occur now in the water treatment and no longer having high levels of lead, but the children are poisoned. And it has an impact upon their behavior. It has an impact upon their ability to learn. And so these are the issues on the collateral damage and the generational damage that live on from a water crisis such as lead poisoning. How do we begin to lift up the impact of the, on, the ongoing impact of lead poisoning, particularly as we look at what is happening with these very children within the educational system in schools. Instead of it being treated as a health crisis in terms of their ability to learn and behavioral issues, and it is a health crisis because lead uh, influences that. It's uh, being responded to in a punitive way. How is this being addressed? Have you seen this being addressed? How should we address it? Yeah, it's. It's huge. Um, yeah, this is one of the things people mean when they say the Flint water crisis isn't over. I mean, there's some very technical reasons they say that. Like, for example, not all those corroded pipes are replaced yet. That's gonna take a while longer. But in a bigger way, there is this like permanent legacy. I mean, this is what is so insidious about lead in particular. It, it gets into your um, blood and then your bones and then your brain and it like and, and especially for these like tiny little developing bodies it like doesn't affect everybody the same way some people like there'll be no obvious symptoms but you know to a certain extent we really have to wait for these kids to grow up to see what the consequences are for them and this is and again this is an entire generation of a city's children exposed through this uptick of lead in their water but also you know because this is a pattern, you know, also like more lead than they should be exposed to through old houses with unremediated paint and, you know, lead that's still in the soil from leaded fuel. I mean, the, the exposures are cumulative and incurable and permanent, and it's absolutely heartbreaking. Um, there have been some folks who have, you know, some scientists who were like trying to make the argument that, um, we shouldn't say that the kids in Flint had been lead poisoned because it's stigmatizing and they, 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 they want to say like lead exposed because we don't really know what all the consequences are and you know we don't want them to grow up thinking they have no potential and I'm, I'm sympathetic to that point to that to a point because they shouldn't be stigmatized because they didn't do anything wrong <laughs> um, but but they were actually poisoned and acknowledging that is important and I think a really crucial step that honesty I think is a crucial step um, before for anything that comes next. Um, one thing that is good that has happened in Flint that um, has not happened in other cities that have also had um, lead crises is uh, the spotlight 
um, was so big that it led to a great deal of um, money, you know, both from public and philanthropic sources that have uh, invested in some uh, really innovative wraparound kind of programs. There's this like brand new school that was built in Flint um, called EduCare. Um, it's available to any kid like zero through six years old. Um, and besides being a sort of childcare slash preschool, they offer like a variety of social services. Everybody there is like trained to keep an eye on like kids who might, you know, have like s signs of like lead poisoning. It's, um, it's in built in this like brand new building. It's probably the first new school that was built in Flint in 50 years. And it's meeting a need that was there even before the water crisis, you know, like early childhood education and a number of nutrition stuff. Um, there's also, you know, um, something called the Flint Registry that the medical community has been like working on trying to, you know, basically keep track of every kid exposed to the water, certainly the kids who are, grew up in Flint, but also the ones who were there during the water crisis and their families moved. Also the kids who like um, maybe live in the suburbs but were like in Flint a lot for some particular program or something like that. Any kid who is like exposed to this water, you know, it, it, they, they're like putting on this like kind of registry that's like meant to, you know, connect a variety of different kind of service programs to make sure they have as much like help and support as they need. There's um, yeah, a number of nutrition programs because, like, um, it, there are known that some, like, particular, you know, like, good nutrition doesn't remove the lead, but it does mitigate some of the, the effects. And because it's a city that is um, a food desert in many ways, again, this is, like, kind of meeting a need. And they also had, like, this is through the federal government, like, expanded Medicare. You know, like they, they sort of like, they had, like, they basically have Medicare for all in Flint, uh, uh, for, and, which is, great for a lot of reasons, even as separate from the water crisis. So, so the good news is there's a lot of people who have been doing a lot of things to look out for the long-term future of these kids, but there's also this like huge question mark that's still there because we don't know really what it's going to look like when they get older. I suspect harder questions may come up. You know, lead's associated with like things like more impulsive behavior and antisocial behavior. It's connected with like crime in a lot of studies. You know, like like what happens like if kids get older and you know affected by like this lead, like have are causing problems in the community and hurting other people in the community. I mean, like w will we still have a capacity for empathy? Um, for them then as we do when they're cute little three-year-olds, we'll see, you know? Like, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of, um, and also like 10 years down the road when like the intensity of the drama of the story isn't with us in the That's same right. way, the public and political pressure isn't with us the same way. Like, what, I don't know. Like, I don't know. That's I mean, right. that's one of the reasons it was hard to finish this is because there's a lot I do not know. I kind of want to stick around and just see. Quick question, you're answering a number of the questions at once that they are coming in, but one quick question. Person wants to know, what, are the, what was the percentage, do you know the percentage of children that were impacted by the lead poisoning in Flint? I don't have an immediate percentage for you, but I'm just gonna say all of them. <laughs> like seriously, I mean like, like the, the, the things, one of the problems, and this came up a lot with like Flint's story, is that um, there's, there's a number of reasons why we don't have like a completely accurate objective measure. And like one is that, you know, especially during nearly two years of denial about like the water crisis, like people weren't necessarily going out of their way to get tested for lead. You know, lead didn't even come up among the series of problems until the last like six months of the escalating water problems. Uh, with lead, when you get tested for lead, like 
if it catches a high amount of lead in your in in a child, that means um, like it's 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 it, it, that means it's still in your blood, which means it's only been. Um, it's gotten in you. It's like basically, it's like you've you've come in contact with it in in the past like 30 days. Once it starts getting into your bones and brains, it's not detectable. So who even you know like we don't even really know. Um, this is like one of the problems. The uncertainty of the legacy of this water crisis is part of the part of part of the harm that's done. So yes, like there are ki there are actual kids who were actually lead poisoned, and we do have numbers that prove it. Um, but the but even beyond that. Every kid who is exposed to this water, and again, not just through drinking, but also through like uh, brushing their teeth and all these all the other ways that we come in contact with water in our lives, they, they they're affected by it because that this shadow is with them for the rest of their lives. Like if they have learning difficulties when they become eight, eighth graders, like their parent will forever wonder, like maybe that was just going to happen anyway. That happens sometimes, you know, um, or was it because of the water? That you don't really know, and that and that the mystery of that, like that, that's one thing that stays with me the most. So many people I talk to, just like look back and they're questioning everything, like for themselves and for their kids. And regardless of whether or not it's true or ever can be known as true, um, the wondering, the mistrust, the, the the ghosts of it that are ever present and traumatizing. Let me pick up on that word mistrust and combine a couple of uh, questions here. And that is the deep well, as you've spoken about, of mistrust. And one of the things that we see in the Flint water crisis is the way in which the government betray the people in the community of Flint and even the ways in which they colluded with the scientific community. Uh, in this betrayal and creating this whole pattern of betrayal and mistrust. And so how, when we're talking about solutions to the problem, how are the people ever to trust science and trust the government? And did you see, to uh, tag in another question, did you see any difference uh, in terms of the political response? Was there a difference in terms of uh, political parties, but partisanship, et cetera, in responding to the water crisis? Or was it across the board in the way in which the government failed the people? Yeah, these are big questions. This is part of what's kind of heartbreaking. And it was difficult writing this to, you know, you know, there's, we're living in a time where there's a lot of, um, push back against the EPA and environmental regulations and public health regulations and water stuff and, and writing this like, you know, you can certainly, you, you know, is, is um, not, is, is, is showing them at, at their worst, basically, you know, and that's, it's, 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 it's hard, it's like, I don't want, I don't want like people to read the book and take away from it the fact that like, oh, we should just get rid of our environmental quality departments and our EPAs and they're the worst, you know, um, they, they, what, what we need is for them to be better, <laughs> more resourced and better and put the public good first, um, all of which were a problem in this particular case. So. The people who have the bulk of responsibility um, in Flint generally acknowledged at this point is like the Department of Environmental Quality and the Department of Health and Human Services. So two public institutions mm -hmm. that should be putting the environment and public health first. And it was uh, a, a series of decisions that led to um, led to led to this uh, crisis. And 
you know, like in that sense, like there's the partisan question is a little bit separate. I mean, some of that comes up later, but like a little bit of that separate, you know, in the sense that, um, you know, what was it within these institutions that led them to be so blind with the city for so long? And I, I don't have a great answer to it, but like some of it is, I, I think, like um, inherited uh, sense that this wasn't a city to go to bat for, you know? Like that was explicitly said in one EPA email, actually. Like I'm not sure if Flint is the kind of community we need to go out on a limb for, is what they said when they were debating whether or not to provide emergency water filters. Um, they, uh, I think also there's this sort of, um, bureaucracy as a disguise, you know, like nobody, nobody particularly felt responsible because everybody's kind of responsible, you know, so it's just, it, it sort of like got its own sort of inertia that way, especially the DEQ had been under, if we're going to get partisan, like especially under the it, it, Republican leadership had like lost a lot of staffing and resources. They had, they were less equipped to do the good, a good job uh, in the first place. I mean, they could have done better than they did for sure, but like they, 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 they um, I think like had a lot of motivation to choose whatever was the easiest or simplest response and um, at any given point, and that was usually to pretend like nothing was wrong. You know, like there is. Who wants to open up the box of things you'd have to do if you acknowledge it's a problem? Um, but there's also there's also the emergency management piece too, and that goes straight to the governor uh, or previous governor actually. Um, emergency management has been in Michigan for a long time, and both Republican and Democratic leaders have used it. But it was greatly expanded under um, our previous administration, Governor Rick Snyder. Uh, he uh, ends the Republican legislature. They, what happened was like. What they wanted to do was to expand the emergency management law so you had more authority and it was easier to send an EM to a community. It was almost certainly they were making these changes in order to, um, in preparation for Detroit's bankruptcy. They wanted an emergency manager in place during the bankruptcy that had a lot of power. Uh, though, but they also started sending more and more. It was the system was used much more and more frequently, but it was such a it was such an expansion of powers that like it, it, like enough community organizers throughout the state got it on the ballot. We voted on it. Communities all across the state voted against it. It was rejected, and then in the lame duck legislature, like the, an almost identical version of the law became law again, but this time with like money attached to it, appropriations, which made it immune from another referendum. So in that sense, it wasn't just like people in the city of Flint whose like votes were <laughs> sidelined. <laughs> um, they just went ahead and like did this law even though the voters had rejected it basically. Um, and yeah, and that this emergency management system, you know, um, disproportionately is affecting not just communities that are people of color and uh, poor, but also democratic communities, <laughs> I think is interesting. Um, like they lose the power of their local votes. And, um, and, and because we have been a very gerrymandered state, I think one reason that it took a Flint a inordinately long time to um, get anybody in Lansing to hear them is because there's fewer people in office there who felt they needed to be accountable to them, right? Like responsive to them, not for a number of reasons. And one of which, one of which I think is like maybe partisan. Um, yeah, and anyway, like among the things that have happened in the wake of the Flint water crisis, there have been, you know, because of a class action settlement, the pipes are being replaced. There's some of these, you know, this is nice school and all that. There's some like technical changes with our water laws in the state. That's great. 
Um, one thing that has not changed is our emergency manager law. That's still on the books. Um, they, uh, despite people being quite clear that if there wasn't one, this would not have happened. <laughs> it wouldn't. It wouldn't have. It just wouldn't have. We have time for a couple of real quick questions. Uh, as I, I want to take a turn, and you talk. You open the book uh, with the activism from uh, the pastor from, I guess, Joy Tabernacle, and the faith community plays a role uh, in what's going on uh, in Flint. So I want to ask you, uh, what ways? do you see that the faith community can be more engaged yeah. and should be more engaged? Um, within Flint or beyond Flint? Well, both, uh, but yeah. in, the, in the water crisis. Well, yeah, I mean, one thing that's true is like, they, I mean, they, Flint is a very churched community. It, it is like the, one of the things that's still very present now is churches and they are like neighborhood centers. They are neighborhood hubs like, and um, have a great deal of leaders of those communities have a great deal of trust and credibility. Um, and also, um, it has provided a kind of structure and community uh, that people have needed as, you know, vacancy has come to plague a lot of the neighborhoods they once called home. Their, their communities have been scarred, right? And so, but they can keep finding this home and these like anchor institutions. So, um, so even before the water crisis, a lot of these folks are like, um, providing, like filling the gaps that have been um, met, um, like not just serving people's like spiritual lives, but also, you know, meeting immediate needs of like food and, 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 and um, um, uh, social service assistance and counseling and things like that and taking people to the hospital when they need to be taken to the hospital. Like I know folks who've done that. And, um, and during the water crisis, it, it was a very natural extension for many of them to become um, organizing hubs, you know? So there's a Catholic church called St. Michael's that was where people frequently met. Um, there's a, a church called uh, Woodside Church um, that I is Christian affiliated. I'm not actually sure like which, you know, I think it's very ecumenical. They very early on had like developed a committee, like a water task force to like, you know, help meet the needs in the community, but also like in their own church community, but also like be like sort of front facing and, you know, work with other folks to kind of investigate what was going on. Um, water church basements were like places where people were collect, turning in their like neighborhood water samples. They, they provided space. Um, and, uh, you know, these like younger and innovative churches like um, George, George Tabernacle were um, like knew how to reach people in their community that nobody else could meet, uh, no, nobody else could reach in the same way. So like when, when finally there was some acknowledgement of the water crisis and, you know, canvassing, a, like the National Guard was activated to go door to door to like, you know, deliver bottled water and you know, filters and things like that. That was a good effort. You know, I appreciate, I'm glad the state was doing it, but it's not going to, not everybody's going to open the door to that. Um, they don't necessarily know where to go. A lot of houses look empty that are not actually empty. Um, you know, and like the, these folks who have, um, who are stakeholders in the community, who know the community, who look like the members of their own community, like are able to, were able to be more effective advocates at this critical emergency time, you know, where time really is of the essence. Um, and that's, that's, I mean, I think that's like really powerful. And if we're thinking of like ways to like kind of grow and like what more people can do, like I think, I think, uh, well, first of all, like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pausing because, like, honestly, I'm kind of, like, wowed by what people are already doing, <laughs> often with very little resources um, and support. Um, but I, I, like, 
some like one one thing that like I, I appreciate like one thing that seems really effective is how a lot of partnerships are happening. Uh, you know, different um, communities are partnering in different ways. Neighborhoods that have 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 not always seen themselves in each other are connecting. The that uh, Civic Park community has um, a wonderful. Uh, liaison, like somebody who's like both part of the community and also teaches at University of Michigan Flint, and what they're doing is they're host they're ho home to a class, a university class that where half the students are m any m members of the community and students also, and they're like working together in ways that um, they haven't worked together before. Like basically, they're creating the structures that they need that don't just meet immediate needs, but present a long-term vision for how. Um, how to stitch a community back together that has been so riven. So we'll end with this. What would you like us to take away from your book? Well, if you get a chance to go to Flint, you should go. Like, <laughs> I actually do recommend that. I mean, there is a lot of like joy and inspiration, a lot that's super, super hard, and a lot that I, I try to communicate in the book, but some things you just gotta be there and meet these folks yourself, you know? So. That's the very first thing that comes to mind. Like, if you get a chance to be present there, like, go do it. There's also a wonderful bookstore. It's called Totem, and you should go to it. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, but beyond that, I guess, like, I would just like hope that the book, um, if if this book were like uh, helped to inspire people to reimagine their own communities as places that were more inclusive and more just, if we were able to like think about infrastructure in a way that. Um, um, as, as a force that can stitch together a community um, and, and rather than separate a community um, that, I mean, I feel like it could be very powerful and I would love, I would love to, to just like watch and learn as people like adapt the best lessons that have come out of the community organizers in Flint um, to, to their own homes and, um, and, and, and not in ways that like not just, you know, make sure that we all have health safety, healthy, safe, clean, affordable water, but also are just like more, um, that are places where we can thrive in every other way too. Thank you for Thank this you. evening. <laughs> Thank you all, and it is a powerful book. It's about Flint and more, and so if you have not yet read the book, it is a must read. So thank you and stay warm.